Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Ignite and Scale, the podcast where we deep dive into the stories of startup growth. I'm thrilled to kick off our series with special guests, the co-founders of Bumper, a company that's truly redefining the vehicle history space. Bumper has made significant strides, especially with the recent success of their Series B funding in a very challenging market. Today, we're going to explore their journey, the evolution of their strategies, and gather insights that are not only inspiring, but also immensely valuable for entrepreneurs and innovators out there. James Jack, good afternoon. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem, no problem. I mean, without further ado, perhaps you could both provide us with an intro into your respective backgrounds before we dive into some of the questions I've got for you. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll kick off there, Mike. Yeah, so um, I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Bumper. I uh, started my career at an accountancy firm on, on a grad scheme at RSM, a kind of top 10 uh, UK accountancy firm. And uh, was involved in kind of auditing, management consultancy, uh, kind of a variety of other roles there. Uh, before kind of pivoting my career a bit and moving into fast-growing tech startups. So I was at a company called Betfair. Uh, I was at Sky. I was also at uh, Wonga, which is kind of a fintech. Um, and then after that, uh, I worked uh, and helped run a portfolio business uh, for uh, a tech VC. Uh, based based out in London, um, and was involved there for a while until you know eventually being introduced to Jack and coming up with the concept of Bumper. Cool, yeah, I'll, I'll pick up there. So, uh, my background um, automotive, I guess. So, following uh, university and a, and a grad scheme in uh, in a different sector, I joined my family's business, uh, the parent company called BTC, some of which people may have heard of, and perhaps more better known as the. Uh, one of their two SaaS platforms they had, they had one called Inquiry Max, and the one that's more relevant to what we do at Bumper, platform called AutoVHC, subsequently became a product under the, uh, the banner of Snap-on, uh, which was a, a vehicle health check tool, or is a vehicle health check tool, that uh, identifies repair work prices that are presents to the customer, which, as we'll explore a bit more perhaps on today, and certainly for what the industry may know us for, is kind of at the core of what we do, helping uh, helping drivers say yes to more work and ultimately obviously repairers convert more of that work uh, and it was through that that platform and that business that I was, uh, I was introduced to James uh, at the start of what we do now today. Yeah I mean just reflecting back on Bumper's journey and I think I've known you guys for about six years now um, and I remember as an advisor to the company working on some of the key selling messages with you um, in fact, I think I sent you a, a copy of that uh, a few days ago. But how is the, those key selling messages that were relevant then? How have they evolved into today's growth story? And are there any aspects that have remained constant? And what's shifted significantly? Yeah, it's interesting. You did send that across. It was actually quite, um, it was interesting to reread that. I think what was encouraging is that you know, things have moved on a lot uh, in the way that we perhaps solve this problem. Um, it, perhaps some of the technology that we utilize both internally and externally and within the dealers tech stack as well. However, the core fundamental problem that we're solving is still a problem that very much exists um, today as much as it did perhaps a few years ago. In certain cases, probably accelerated even more so, which is really around 
uh, obviously the conversion of service and repair work and the affordability that's associated with that. And that's not to say this is always a totally distressed purchase. Obviously, for a lot of people, uh, you know, there can be an element of, um, you know, of convenience. Like they want to get more of the work done today, but, you know, perhaps stretching themselves to do so would be a problem. So from, from our point of view, we recognize that for dealers, you can have all of the parts available. You could have technician time available. Um, you could even have courtesy cars available. But if the customer doesn't have the funds available or deems you too expensive, that's a difficult uh, message to, um, to convey and ultimately to convert that work. Really what we're doing is addressing that core problem. Um, and the way that we do that, as I say, has evolved. We're yeah. trying to make that whole transaction a better experience for all involved. And ultimately equals a much happier driver at the end of it and greater customer retention is an outcome that we're laser focused on today as we were as much as we were um, beforehand. What has evolved is the other payment products that we have around that as well. So that's our core by now like pay later product that everyone knows us for perhaps. But many of our retailers now also yeah. utilize our other payments products. So a pay by card product facilitating credit and debit cards and and uh, an Apple Pay and Google Pay, etc. A pay by bank. Uh, product processing open banking transactions and then most recently what we call paypad so actual physical pdq machine so it's evolved to encapsulate any type of payment or any type of customer journey um, but ultimately there's still a lot of consistency in the yeah. way that we do this and you know in terms of the initial vision for the company you've expanded the services as you've alluded to as well but what were the most pivotal moments in your journey to date would you say well, I would probably say the big inflection point came from fully embedding our products into the software of dealers. You know, before it was a completely standalone product that relied on, you know, the engagement of the service advisor. And, you know, we're very fortunate that we have some incredibly engaged high users, uh, kind of super users of our product. Um, however, you know, the nature of a service department, you know, you have a lot of churn, um, you know, a lot of people coming in, coming out, uh, and for them always to be aware of the product and how it works is, is you know, a challenge to scale. Whereas actually by embedding it into the vehicle health check process, the video platforms, the DMS systems, it really enabled us to scale without completely relying on the service advisor. So we had effectively two flows, a fully digital one that was completely within the hands of the consumer and they could approve the work and spread the cost or pay the full amount uh, and, and, you know, accommodate potentially a, a more digital focused consumer um, as well as continuing to have our standalone product where a service advisor could process it face to face or over the telephone. So, so I think that was the big turning point when we could offer both those and to start to cater for a, a wider segment uh, a larger de uh, demographic, but also in dealers where the staff may not be as well trained or as knowledgeable or new to the business, we, through these integrations, we were transacting without them. So yeah, that's really when we, we had a big takeoff moment and, and led to our first institutional investors um, for our Series A funding round. And what would you say was the biggest or most interesting hurdle that you've overcome, whether that's operationally, strategically, financially? Well, I think you know there's there's always uh, hurdles to be to be, to overcome. I think you know you, you feel like you've often overcome the kind of the biggest one, and then there's something else that comes around the corner. I probably think about the the kind of the broader journey of us as a business. COVID 
you know, it's probably a common answer to that, was a major hurdle uh, in the sense that clearly overnight, pretty much everyone's businesses were shut down and we were not immune to that, albeit we still did, did um, trade to a, a small extent. But that massively, um, I guess, changed the way that we saw our business, but actually importantly, the way that our client base, the, the OEMs, the franchise groups, the retailers that we work with viewed it as well. So yes, COVID meant that there was obviously fewer vehicles going through workshops, but what it did mean coming out of it, it did change the way that a lot of those transactions took place. It probably, well, it, it certainly forced a lot of retailers to think about their digital journeys more. You physically couldn't have people coming on site, getting their cars repaired and ultimately paid for. Equally, it obviously put some pressure or changes on people's income as well. So look, very, very scary time for you know a fairly significant period for us as a business, but actually coming out yeah. of that, I think there was some long-term shifts within the industry, within the, the driver base, and obviously with us as well, that changed the way that people transact. So it created an openness around the conversation of affordability, um, and it was a, perhaps a more positive conversation yeah. to have, but equally the digital journeys that James talked about there were perhaps more focused on optimized and ultimately we sit at the core of that and that definitely i think was a, a major hurdle but long term i think we've certainly benefited from in the way that we and our our customer base have, have, have kind of addressed that coming out of it i guess as you say people started talking about cost of living crisis people needed a solution to help them through that and um I guess, you know, when you're offering a consistent service, which makes a lot of sense to the consumer as well, that, that perhaps came into its own as we came out of COVID. Um, and you had the the customer journey enhancements there to make it a kind of a, a seamless kind of transaction. I mean, just turn into the Series B. Um, I mean, huge congratulations on that. They've been few and far between in the, in the current market. Um, what, what, what were the key kind of strategies or insights that helped you successfully secure that funding in what was, you know, a very difficult funding environment? Yeah, I think there were a, a number of elements to this. Firstly, you know, only good businesses, without sounding kind of too arrogant, only kind of only good businesses getting fund, funding right now. You know, you need to have strong unit economics, good revenue growth. I mean, we're very fortunate that we've we've grown from we've grown kind of over 10x since 2020 so you know we've been doubling the business consistently for the last few years which um has you know really really helped um i guess one of the other elements is that we've we've built up trust with our investors particularly from the series a so we've um you know every single month we have a big list of management kpis that we set ourselves targets how we perform with a long, quite detailed running commentary that we provide every deal, every investor. So I think that helped develop trust to, to show that you, we would do what we said we were going to do and that you know, we're kind of on top of our numbers. Uh, and we have a lot of kind of live reporting dashboards, again, that we have available to our, all our investors. So I think that helped. So you know, actually every investor we had from our Series A um, participated in our Series B, and actually a few of them doubled the amount they put in from their A to B. So that certainly helped. But being completely <laughs> honest, it was a real numbers game as well because we had to kiss a hell of a lot of frogs before we got uh, yeses. Uh, and I think we were probably a bit naive on the VC world when when we first started pitching, you know, five, six, seven years ago, uh, and didn't quite appreciate just how many 
pitches you have to do until you get that yes and and, and our series a was pretty similar so it, it was having that um uh, determination every time you got a no was just to pick yourself back up again 10 minutes later do the same pitch to a brand new investor and try and act as enthusiastic as you did previously. So it, it certainly wasn't always easy. And I think we had like a hundred no's. I mean, it was getting pretty bleak to be honest. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think we, we still had belief in, in, in the product and the business. And I think the final point is that we, we raised when we were in a position of strength, when we were growing strongly and we had a lot of cash in the bank. Yeah, I think a, a big mistake uh, founders make is leaving it until you have a, a three, six month runway. Um, and, and then you really are beholden to that investor. And in this market, they're squeezing you for valuations at the best of times. But if you're suddenly running out of cash as well, you know, it really puts you in, in that weak position. So we probably raised a year before we needed to. And looking back now, I think that was um, definitely the right decision. I guess, look, the, the, the hard work must start again as well with, with new investors, with existing investors doubling down on you as well. Um, I know you're, you're launching some new products. Are you able to kind of talk about any plans for 2024? And then maybe as a follow-up to that question, how you intend to leverage AI within that? Yeah, as you said, I think as I touched on briefly, we are more than just a, a buy now, pay later company. Uh, yes, it's at the core of what we do and it's what we're, we're best known for, but we recognize that not every customer wants to spread the cost. You know, they certainly want to transact digitally, but they may want to pay in full, which is why we introduced that too. Was, that was related to COVID as well, um, where you physically couldn't come on site to transact, but we launched our pay by card product. So an SMS, email um, generated link, or obviously could be embedded into any of the platforms that we've mentioned uh, already that gives those people the ability to transact very quickly digitally at their convenience uh, and allows the retailer to secure payment um, without the customer having to come on site or if they do come on site adding to the the, the queue of people and, and those pinch points at the start or end of a, of a day for, for collection and drop off um, we then subsequently have launched a pay by bank product so i think people will be growingly familiar with open banking as a concept, but instant bank-to-bank -bank transfers. Again, recognizing some of the shifts in the uh, dealer ecosystem, obviously there's huge cost initiatives being put in place across all OEMs and, and retail partners. And we've got a massive ability to reduce their transaction fees. So open banking you know, carries a much, much lower transaction fee, super secure, can facilitate instant payment. There's been a great reception to that product and we're seeing it utilized on both sides of the car, both sales and after sales, which has been, uh, which has been really exciting. Uh, and then the actual physical PDQ machines, which we call PayPad, they actually bring together all of our payment options into one physical term. And also if you've got customers at the desk, whether they wanna spread the cost, pay in full via card or open banking, we can facilitate that through a branded journey that fully reconciles within the DMS to the ledger accounts, et cetera. So really exciting bit of te tech much more nascent than our other products, but something that we're looking at to roll out en masse. And then going back to kind of the other part of your question there about other markets that we're, you know, we've, the reason we've done some of the investment obviously is to grow the headcount. We recognize that we've got a big opportunity in all markets. We don't want to dilute our focus in the UK. So we're doubling down on our UK um, kind of team and infrastructure, but also adding to our headcount in, in Germany, Spain, the Netherlands and Republic of Ireland, where fundamentally the problem that we, going back to start the call, that we're looking to solve 
unsold work, unexpected costs, potentially a bad customer outcome, lack of retention of older cars. That problem exists in those markets as much as, as it does here in the UK. So, you know, we see that as an opportunity that we can we can capture you know, from what we've learned here in the UK. And that's something that we're, you know, we're really excited about 2024 and becoming a truly international um, payments business, uh, not solely just UK as well. Uh, James, I don't know if you want to pick up on the AI point there. Yeah, I mean, um, we've actually always used elements of AI, you know, for probably the last four or five years, kind of using machine learning for our underwriting. You know, we have such big data sets that we process um, to really get the most out of that and optimize our accept rates and ensure we're lending responsibly and and uh, generating good arrears rates. Uh, you know, it, it's important to leverage that technology. So that's always been kind of a pretty fundamental part of of other business and it really differentiates us to the, the the kind of BMPL generalists who don't collect the same amounts of data. I mean we, we collect the consumer finance data of the consumer, but also the vehicle types, the engine sizes, MOT performance, you know, you name it, hundreds if not thousands of additional data sets that really give us this unique insight. So that's one part and, and that's only going to develop and you know as AI becomes more sophisticated we'll be putting more elements of that into our underwriting and, um, and processing. Um, I guess the exciting elements that we're using um, much, much more recently are kind of around marketing. So, you know, when we do um, testimonial videos for the UK, you know, within minutes, you can generate German, Spanish, Dutch versions um, at incredibly good standards for pence. Whereas before we would have, you spent thousands of pounds of uh, having localized uh, production teams uh, filming it. So elements like that, all our SEO, all our content, um, a lot of our sales processes now leverage um, uh, AI in terms of um, blanket emailing uh, prospects across Europe or writing very detailed, detailed personalized messages. We've even been trying it in the call centers as well for some of the kind of more basic tests and requirements. So really, you know, it it should and is touching every part of the business. We had uh, one of the UK's leading AI experts coming into the business and presenting to the whole company uh, a couple of months ago. And, and we had a two-hour workshop with our senior management team. Again, just making sure that we're learning best practice of how this can be leveraged within our space, but also being aware of some of the, the risks, you know, ensuring that your own data is protected and secure and isn't, you know, available to uh, uh, the, wide, the, the wider world. So you know, there's certainly risks, but I think if you're going in there with your eyes open, have policies in place, protect your data, um, which is obviously incredibly crucial, then, you know, there's a lot of upside to it. And, you know, we're certainly excited about how we can continue to leverage it across the business. And finally, um, just to wrap up, um, what, what's the single bit of advice that both for you individually would give entrepreneurs who are starting out or looking to scale their business, particularly in light of current market conditions? I think from my side, there's obviously, well, you know, James and I on today's podcast as the founders, I think there's obviously a wider team of people um, that are, you know, massively responsible for, for what we do today, the growth of the business, the health of the business, uh, like you say, in terms of current market conditions. 
I think for me, like one of the best things would be getting as best as possible a, a great team around you. You know, a team of people that fundamentally you enjoy their company as well. Um, you know, when times are tough and we've had some very, very tough times, I think you need to be able to to rely on those people. And also, you know, being able to spend time in their company is key. You do spend huge amounts of time. James and I joking actually about the amount of time we've uh, we've spent together of late is, uh, is, is extensive, perhaps doing a bit of time apart, uh, arguably. Uh, but getting a good time, getting a good amount of people uh, together, um, you know, you, that's when you really kind of see the kind of true character of people. You know, when times are good, everybody's happy to be, you know, part of it. The whole success has many fathers um, kind of narrative. It's when times are hard and you, you really need to pull together. And I think we've got some great members of the team. We've got some super long-standing members of our senior team that are as as responsible um, for, for the, the growth of the business. So for me, it'd be about getting the best people around you as possible. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. You, you need to be enjoying the work. You want to be coming into work, um, you know, looking forward to it rather than kind of dreading it. So I completely agree with that. I mean, I think the other characteristic is definitely tenacity yeah. i mean you know, we talked about the series b we will have done hundreds of pitches during our series b probably a similar number of series a you know it, it's when you have a no that you pick yourself back up again and and keep that enthusiasm so tenacity and, and you know that definitely applies to you know the, the sales team you know there's been so many groups over the years who said no 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 you know and then the 50th time in asking, um, it suddenly is a yes. So, you know, I think that's been a, a huge part of Jack's success. You know, now have over 5,000 dealers is a huge testament to the success of him and his team. Um, and, and I think the, the final point probably is, you know, the expression that, you know, perfection is the enemy of good. And that, I do think founders of an idea try and make it perfect and, spend hours and hours and hours thinking and strategizing without just actually getting on with it and doing it and it might not be perfect on day one but i think the that action and taking a bit of a punt is the key to you know a successful founder um you know you need an mpv to get live and trying to make something perfect that doesn't then have market fit could be too late so you're much better getting things live learning from them and improving them as you go rather than trying to have this perfect product on day one. 100%. Well, gents, really appreciate your time and sharing some of those valuable insights and uh, hopefully have you on in the next uh, six to nine months. But um, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no, Cheers, Mike. Enjoy being on with Yeah, thank you for having us, Mike. If you want to listen to more episodes of the podcast, we're on all good audio platforms, Our website is also www.cambriaprivatecapital.com and you can also find myself on LinkedIn and Twitter where we publish our weekly blogs as well. Please do get in touch if you want more information.